Welcome back to the show. Well, we've had a bit of a gap over January, mainly because we've been really busy at Exige and we've also been working hard on developing the new concept for the podcast. So we've got some really exciting changes coming in 2021. As you'll notice, though, from all of the shows going forward, we're trying to keep it to one hour to respect your time and hopefully really pack in lots of wisdom in a manageable and consumable length of show. And I'll be telling you a bit more about the new concept of the show over the coming episodes. And I'll be seeking your feedback for those episodes so you can tell us whether or not you're enjoying them. And that will help us know if we're going in the right direction together or if we should do something different. My first guest for this 2021 episode is Andy Rea, former CEO of Munich Degree Digital Partners. Many will know Andy because he's been an absolute cornerstone in the development and growth of the insurtech space because of the work that Munich Re Digital Partners does in supporting many of the new and innovative insurers who have entered the market over the last four years. For those of you who don't know, Munich Re are the world's second largest reinsurer and Digital Partners is that division in which they've used to incubate some very exciting insurtechs through supporting them with their platform and investment. And Andy will talk a little bit about that. But the main point of this podcast was to really tap into Andy's experience and understanding of what it takes to grow a business. And so I'm calling this episode, The Skills You Don't Have. Because as you grow a business, it becomes increasingly important to recognize that you need talented people around you who can fill the gaps that you just can't see to. Andy specifically shares what he's learned about how to find and support those talented people who will help his organization grow and how specifically important trust is within a business and how to create it. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, I give you Andy Rea. So Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure to get you on the show and I, I wanted you here because I think you've had a very interesting career so far. Um, we've known each other for a number of years, but um, you started out with uh, University of Cambridge in mathematics and then did a short stint at Pru. But I got to know you mostly when you were working at Oliver Wyman, um, where you found your way into insurance um, practice there. And you left Oliver Wyman as the head of the Amir Insurance Consulting Practice. And then you made a, a leap to industry as a CEO, which many in consulting would love to do. So I would sort of like you maybe just to sort of tell us a bit about, you know, your own journey from consulting into industry with Munich Re and maybe what you found particularly challenging or different about becoming a CEO after leaving consulting. Sure. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I started out in, in industry um, and I, I went through, you know, some mid-management kind of positions the thing I always felt then was that uh, in industry you don't have the the sort of intellectual bite that you have in consulting in consulting you just presented with a series of hard problems all the time in industry you don't really get intellectually difficult problems what you get is stress you get you know you have to absorb stuff um, and uh, and at the time I was sort of frustrated you know you go through 
school and university and most of that is really about you know intellectually challenging things you know you do a math degree at Cambridge it's uh, extremely intellectually challenging frankly too intellectually challenging for me so <laughs> uh, so I ended up in in consulting and I and I loved it I loved uh, solving problems I loved you know going into a business um, working really really hard to get my get my head around what was going on and to come up with with a solution and that's what uh, as a as a brand of why was very sort of solutions oriented it wasn't about getting things done it was about it was about uh finding the key that would unlock something um uh towards the end of my time at olive wyman i was there for 10 years and we built the insurance practice from scratch which was an amazing adventure you know olive wyman was a banking business when we joined it and um uh, myself and three colleagues basically built the insurance practice from uh, from scratch, two from outside the business and two from inside the business. Mm. Um, but I, I found myself working for Aegon, the big Dutch uh, insurer, mm. and they were going through uh, a transformation. They'd had a really tough time in the global financial crisis, and they were going through a sort of existential restructure about thinking about how the subsidiaries work compared to the group and the group was trying to get more control and it was you know we came on board because it was an interesting intellectual problem first of all you know how do you organize the group how do you move a group from one that's been that's very uh, decentralized to having a little bit more structure but without losing that sort of decentralized culture um, but I got to know Alex Winans, the Aegon CEO, very well. And what I realized was that when we left after you know, four or five months of, uh, of work, we left him with what I then realized was the most interesting problem of all. You know, we'd, we'd written this out on slides and it was all very, very clear, but he had to get his management to buy into this. Mm. And so he had to get management to buy into uh, um, uh, a group, a, a group headquarters that was going to be much more interventionist, that was going to have, you know, many more lines into the centre. So there would be, a, you know, there's a group HR structure and a group strategy structure rather than everything going from group CEO to business unit CEO. Uh, and there was, a, you know, that's a huge uh, change management effort. And the more I thought about that and the more I talked to Alex, you know, in the in the sort of months and then years after after that project, the more I thought, actually, it's that that's really interesting, isn't it? It's, it's the the really interesting problems in life are when you are trying to get people who are, um, uh, you know, who are very, very good at what they uh, what they do. And you're trying to bring them around to your way of your way of thinking. And you're trying to you're trying to bring them with you on a journey rather than rather than sort of write down the answer on a slide um and, and sort of as soon as i had that realization um I, I realized that i that you know the next stage of my career had to be uh had to, had to be back doing that had to be back um you know being a being a change leader rather than an ideas guy mm. um i took um uh, so i made the decision to to leave of Wyman, I started looking around. Um, I found myself working for the uh, the Financial Stability Board, um, who were trying to figure out um, the whole question about systemic risk and how um, uh, uh, you know how, how how to prevent how to prevent the banks all failing again. And and they brought um, uh, I, I got involved because they wanted to understand the extent to which insurance had the same risk, whether it had the same risks or or on not um and, and in a sense that sort of disconnected me a bit from the run-of-the-mill 
consulting, you know, uh, in going to visit clients, doing an ongoing piece of work because I was doing this piece of research. Um, and then I took three months off. Um, and then honestly, I struck, I, I struck lucky. Um, <laughs> uh, all, almost every headhunter, in fact, every headhunter but one I talked to said, look, the only way, the only way to go from consultant industry is to go through a group strategy, head of group strategy position, mm. wait your time out. And I, I've never been very good at waiting. I'm a bit impatient. Um, and um, yeah, as luck would have it, I, I met um, uh, I met Jenny from Hydric and Struggles, who said, "Yes, that's the advice I would normally give you, but as it happens, I have the perfect role for you." Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and the rest is the rest is history. Yeah, that's. Um, I think often we we do fall into the trap, don't we, of of treading the same same path that others do because we see it as a rule, we see it as a as the only way to go. Um, and maybe that's a nice link in some ways to the idea of innovation in insurance. But, uh, you know, I'd like to just before we get there, I'd like to just talk a little bit about ideas versus execution, because you said something earlier on really about this sort of difference between consulting and then going to industry. So now that you've been as a, a CEO of a unit, how much of your experience has been or time is spent on ideas versus execution now in these, these sort of CEO positions? It's. I, I'm not sure that's the right. Um, I'm not sure that's the right split, actually. Um, it's maybe, you know, ideas versus execution versus persuasion. I think most of my most of my life is persuasion. It's, I think that's what most of what a CEO does. Um, so one of the things I used to think about uh, when I found myself in Munich Re, I was um, a year, a year and a bit into my career in Munich Re. They uh, they gave me a bigger mandate. So I had um, I run the life business in uh, UK, Africa, Asia Pacific. So that was, uh, I, I forget, about 15, maybe about 15 businesses, um, not 15 offices, uh, all, in a, all in a structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, of course, had a set of direct reports. Those direct reports had direct reports who had direct reports who had, who had direct reports. And, um, uh, and when I looked at the, the businesses where we had problems or, or strategic opportunities and we were, we were trying to do something, um, you, you then realize the limits of your own power. Um, because really all you can do as, as someone in charge of somebody else is instruct that person you're in charge of. You can't really reach much further. You might be able to reach to the next level down, but you can't reach further than that. You know, um, they say the ideal size of a business is, or the ideal maximum size of a business is 100 to 150 people, because more than that, you can't know those people. And if you don't know them, they're not your people. And if they're not your people, they're not going to do what you want them to do. So as CEO of a, of a, a sort of confederation of businesses like that, you can make big decisions. You know, I can decide, I can decide, oh, let's close our Japanese business. Absolutely, I can do, I, I, I can do that. But I can't get the Japanese business to think about data differently because that's because it's not the CEO of the Japanese business that does that, nor is it the person he reports to. It's someone two, three layers down. And I don't know that guy's name and he doesn't know my name. Well, he knows my name and knows my face. because He's never spoken. Real power in an organization, I think, exists primarily at the sort of team leader level. Um, mm. So. Um, and depending on the size of the structure and uh, uh, you know that can be that that can be at different points but basically 
Um, the person, you know, at the bottom of an organization, you have somebody who does something. Mm. They spend all doing things. And then above them, you have the person that controls the people who are doing things. Hmm. Now, those people have power because they are very close to the levers. They can turn to you and go and go, well, stop doing that over there and do this. I can't. Right. If I'm if uh, uh, if I'm your boss's boss, the best I can do is say, look, could you get Will to do something different? And that guy will go, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or give me 15 reasons why, why actually Will can't <laughs> do that and he's got to do this. Um, so. We have to do as a as a CEO of anything but a small business um, is you spend your time uh, creating the uh, creating the picture that you want, drawing the picture and, uh, and and getting your staff to follow you on that picture. It doesn't matter whether it's a strategy that came out of your head or from some consultants or from the team or from your boss or or or, or where it comes from. What matters is, can you bring the people with you on the uh, on the journey, mm. and then can you uh, and then can you protect those people? So, so this this sort of idea then of persuasion of like leading people to sort of follow you, um, showing them the picture as you put it. What were the tools that you found to be most effective in? painting that picture and creating a persuasive environment for them to to follow the first word that springs to mind actually is truth um, mm. i think i think in business we don't tell the truth enough mm. uh, and in, in both my most difficult situations um, uh, at munich re i found truth really mattered so we had one business which was just strategically a uh, uh, a mess it was designed for a market which no longer existed and it had a huge cost base for a market which was almost zero profit margin uh, and it was designed to do things that the market didn't really value anymore so obviously we cut very hard in that business and one of the things that happens when you uh, when you cut cost in a business in particular when you cut people i mean you, you know no one cares if you cut overhead but as soon as you start making redundancies um you you create some sort of fear in the business even when very often you know my, this was my first experience of making redundancies and and what you actually see is that people do get it they see that they, they, they see the people who are being asked to leave and they go you know this person doesn't work as hard as me let's say um so so they do they do accept it but you always have that sense that you you've then told them that your business is in difficulty mm. and you have to be very careful not to just tell them that it's all fixed because if you tell them it's all fixed then the next time you go and do something they're like oh well it's broken again or, or maybe he didn't tell us the truth the first time um and so what uh, what we did and it took me a couple of attempts to uh, to realize that i had to do this was um we had to explain to the staff um uh, what uh, uh, what the economics of the business were and we had to put it in terms that they could all understand um so that they could see um you know what our they could understand what our cost base needed to be where our cost base was today what we thought the market was doing and then you come back six months later or three months later and you say this is what we thought was going on this is how we are against that track 
And this is why and this is why for now we don't have a cost problem. And we let people then work it out for themselves, you know, and they could and they could see. And a couple of years later, when we when we did have to take a bit more cost out of the business, um, it it was a surprisingly smooth process because people understood they saw the chart, they recognized the chart and they and they realized that that's what we had to do. That, that's really interesting. So I hear in that then that there's this idea of truth as a, a key pillar for creating a much more accurate perception of the situation and that then that gives people who are doing the work who are executing who are out in the field agency to make the right decisions so you give them the truth help them see the situation clearly and am i hearing you right then you that helps them then make the right decisions to go and do the right thing and have you found that people will do the right thing most of the time once they're given that responsibility uh, um yes that's right yes agency is uh is a really good thing yes um businesses often don't give um uh, give the people agencies um one of the one of the things i found and and i and i find still find this all over the place um is um the uh, the sort of multiple sign off thing um so one of the first things i did when i um uh, when i joined munich re you know it's it's very odd your first day as a ceo you really have imposter syndrome you know you're sitting <laughs> in the office and you've got this massive desk you know oliver wyman you know you know you never even had your own office uh, didn't, didn't, didn't matter if you were the if you were the managing partner you still didn't have your own office so I've got this big office and a desk and a secretary whose job appeared to be to, to keep people away from talking to me that, that. <laughs> um, and uh, but so in comes somebody with uh, in an appointment for me to sign a treaty um, so you know this is ostensibly a legal document uh, and it's a legal document that involves the transfer of you know hundreds of millions of pounds to for for risk so I ought to really take this seriously and I see 11 people have signed this before me wow so I start asking about this uh, and, and what I realize is it's really complicated um the treaty is actually a, a cd of the of the uh, of the premium rates so I'm signing off this cd without actually so having do, do you want to explain those things so treat you've got a treaty right. a cd so, um yeah so, not, not something you listen to in your car not like an old-fashioned yeah, CD. Yeah, no. cd is something you listen to in your car right oh, so, oh, but, so treaty oh. so treaty is a um uh, uh in 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 reinsurance um you are you are selling insurance to insurers so you're covering the bigger risks uh that that an insurer might not want to cover themselves um so it's earthquakes it's pandemics there's a there, there, there's a current example you yeah. cover you cover the <laughs> pandemic so that your client who's a who's a, the insurer that your your listeners might have heard of you know aviva or legal in general doesn't go bankrupt because of a pandemic you mm -hmm. use like munich Re, who has a huge global balance sheet and they can survive um i think it's public uh, i can't remember the exact number but munich Re's hit on the on the pandemic is you know of the order of a billion euro something like that and and that's the kind of money that munich re can sort of shrug, shrug its shoulders and go okay that's fine um so so the treaty is the contract that covers that relationship so what you have is we say um depending depending on on on, on what business you sell legal and general um we will charge you this much money for uh, for that kind of for that kind of risk and the treaty comes in a in a form it's probably 
30 or 40 pages long and it's all legally it's all just legal contract wording and it refers to the the rates and and because the rates are complicated because legal in general sells many many different types of business rather than put all the rates on um uh, you know into the, into the treaty typing them up you put them on a cd physically the oh, kind of thing literally you a cd okay sorry yeah okay <laughs> Yeah, you know, these days they probably <laughs> go on Google Drive or something. But this is <laughs> so, so I'm signing this treaty, which I've not read. Um, I started reading it, but I realized I didn't really understand it. You know, you, you really have imposter syndrome then, you know, like this is, this is one of the deals that our business does, and I don't really understand it, and I'm signing the thing. And the answer I was given was, you don't need to worry because everybody else has seen it before, before you. And I thought, well, why should I sign it then? So, I mean, of course I signed it. But um, but it struck me um, that, you know, if you have if you have 12 people, if 12 people have to sign something, then the first person that signs it doesn't really care because 11 people check it after him. Second person, the same, there's still 10 people to go. By the time you get to the middle, well, five people have looked at this already, so I can just sign it now. So I'm thinking, who takes responsibility for this? Who is the person who is actually read this thing end to end to end and gone yes it's been done correctly there's nothing wrong um and so i sat down in an executive meeting one day and said um uh, guys how about we only have two signatories we have the person that writes it and the person that checks it and they take and they take responsibility um and because you know if you're one of two people that signs something then absolutely you take responsibility and you read it. And the reason they hadn't done that was not because these people um, uh, were not capable of doing it, not for any legal reason, but just because they didn't want, you know, relatively junior people in the organization being responsible for signing something. You know, if you sign something, you've got to be the CEO. Right? That seems to be absurd, right? The, the person that takes responsibility for something should be the person who's close enough to understand what it is. Uh, and and, and giving, you give them responsibility and it works. Yeah, okay, that was exactly it. And I was going to say to you then, so in giving people responsibility in that instance, did you find that was a, a those people who had to sign, those two people, were they happy with that responsibility, with that, that new level of agency? Um, uh, yes, and actually um, uh, questions started to come back from them. So, um, you know, this was this would be the first time that they would question, you know, what about what about this clause? Are we happy with this clause? Does this Does this make sense? Are we, you know, are we comfortable? And all of a sudden you realize there's this huge amount of knowledge. What we found was that uh, uh, that the people who are now the sort of final signature on a document, they really took that role seriously. Um, mm. They really did make sure that we were uh, uh, that they were that, that they knew what they were signing and that what they were signing was correct. Um, and, and that's massive. Right. It's massive. Not just because it avoids you, you know, making mistakes. Um, it's massive because it gives those guys, uh, you know, a real a real sense of purpose, a real sense of of what their role is, what they're contributing to the business, and how important that is. Mm. Well, this is this is an important link here, then, because you, you mentioned something about imposter syndrome, and I suppose everybody in up and down the chain in an organisation is feeling that way as you move up through the levels of any organisation. So, when when you were dealing with this idea of imposter syndrome as a CEO, um. Was there a point at which you felt like that sort of idea 
imposter syndrome or is that something that just just sort of persists um yeah for me for me the point the point when you become comfortable with um with your work is when you need to move on um <laughs> you um I, I i sort of characterize it in in the, the sort of, there are sort of two distinct phases there is that um uh, and for me it was really the first time you the first time you're suddenly the ceo of something um then you really have you know if you like acute imposter syndrome where you're you know how how on earth did somebody give me this responsibility you know <laughs> and, and, and you know you know how you get that responsibility you get that responsibility because you've got a bullshitting in an interview really <laughs> yes. um, you i never had the sense that i you know i deserved that in, in in that way maybe i'm not arrogant enough um but um so that so that's quite acute and that that goes away you know you get you get comfortable with the role you realize that your direct reports some of whom are in my case all of whom are more experienced than me you realize that they are comfortable with uh, that that they see you as a as, as a good ceo and then that sort of goes away um you still i think always have that you know the sort of chronic imposter syndrome where um you you still feel you ought to know what's going on more than you do mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I, yeah and, and i think when when you get to the point that you know what you think you know what's going on well uh, so well you no longer have that sort of nagging feeling then you should probably move on i think at that point you've probably run out of ideas to you then in terms of a learner's mindset, is that something, that humility of being ready to learn and to admit that you don't have the answer, is that part of the solution or is that part of the journey or what are your um, thoughts on that? Yes, I, I, I think that is a part of a part of growth. Um, it, it's a bit um, sort of admitting to yourself, I, I, I like that idea, you sort of admit to yourself that you, you have a career. So you admit to yourself, that you've made it to to wherever to wherever it is that you are, and and it's okay for for that person in that position not to not to know everything. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I jobs I had to do when I was when I was running Asia, the Asians in in some countries like Japan and Korea is a good example. Um, they like the the sort of senior level meetings in which nothing really happens but 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 they're important somehow the working level relationships uh, don't work culturally unless you have these high level handshake type meetings mm-hmm. um and they the previous ceo of munich green nicholas von bomhard was a master at this he spent a lot of time going to visit these clients and having these very high level meetings uh, and so if he was meeting um uh, a large life insurance company he would very often ask me to come along he came from the general insurance side of the business felt he didn't know life maybe as well as he uh, as well as he should so uh, so he wanted to have a wingman um and the conversation would start and it would usually start on a sort of high level it would be uh, it would be about politics you know what's happening with the european union all that stuff and nicholas was fantastic at just talking of this you know you would think he was angela Merkel's best friend the way he, <laughs> he would talk um 
and then and then the, the conversation would come around and if they would ask some question as soon as they got to something to do with life insurance um he would immediately recognize when he was uh, you know in danger of stra- straying out of his depth and rather than take that step he would just go to be honest i'm not the expert on uh, on life insurance which was why i bought andy and uh, and and he would just sort of look at me and i just thought that's uh, a supreme confidence that that firstly you know he wouldn't step into it and have to be rescued which would be awkward um he wouldn't uh, you know or, or or step in it and sort of lead it in the wrong way so that i would sort of have to somehow sort of slightly correct it or just you know go along with it with it being wrong and it almost didn't matter what I would say, you know, they would just sort of nod wisely. Um, <laughs> and that, that sort of uh, ability to, to just, uh, you know, admit what you don't know um, and, and either, either learn or, or just, you know, find a wingman who, who can do it better than you, um, I think is, is one of the most important skills in, a, in, in any kind of leader, really. I think that's a nice place for us to talk about the idea of teams and the idea of successful teams and how we can be humble as leaders and recognize what we're not good at and bring a team together of people who are much better at those things than we are and then empower them and give them agency. That's a great place for us maybe to talk a bit about Munich Re Digital Partners because I think we've already spoken a bit about it. But for those who don't know what Munich Re Digital Partners is, would you please tell us? It's a uh, a partnership and investment vehicle. Um, so it's a it's a business that partners with uh, with insurtechs, so with um, uh, new technology based insurance businesses, uh, and also invests in them at the same time. Mm. Um, we we started the business in 2016. Um, we've made about uh, by, the t- by the end of 2020, we'd made about 500 million dollars. We've invested about four hundred million dollars in our uh, in our partners. Um, so we became we became the giant of the sort of insurance technology revolution, which is uh, which is going on just now. Great. So 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 for those listening, so basically what Munich Re Digital Partners were doing, we're making we're, we're giving the backing to interesting insure techs, exciting insure techs, giving them the ability to go out and write business um, through direct investment and giving them capacity as well um, to write those. That's right. Um, that's right. The thing about um, the thing about insurance is if you if you imagine, um, you know, trying to start, uh, you know, a little tiny insurance business. So you think I'll focus on one thing, you know, I'll just let's mm-hmm. say I'll, I'll, I'll just write, you know, homeowners insurance for people in london that's a that's a that's a nice steady thing and if i if i can make that work i'll do something else okay so what do i need well i need a i need some distribution an app a front end a website whatever it is so i so i build that and behind that um i uh i I need an underwriting engine so so i to be able to price so i can build some technology to do that i get some rates from somewhere i'm not quite sure where yet um Behind that, um, I need, you know, if people have, uh, you sell insurance in order that you can pay claims. So I need uh, uh, some claim software and a, and a claims team. Um, uh, behind that, I need um, uh, I need what they call a system of record. Um, the regulator will expect me to have a database in which everyone who's got a policy from me, I've got all their details. Um, uh, I also, of course, need a bunch of regulatory um uh, uh, regulatory permissions. Um, so I 
need legal structure, I need to apply for various things, I need to have a compliance team. Um, uh, where am I going behind that? I've got um, I've got money coming in and out, so I need so I need billing. Um, I need the uh, the admin around that reconciliation, accounting, technical accounting, all going to go. So I need a balance sheet. I need an insurance company that's going to need capital for my insurance company. I need maybe ten million dollars. I need a reinsurance structure on the back of my on the back of my carrier to make it do something. Um, people won't like me unless I unless I have a rating. So I now need to go and talk to the rating agencies. Now for about three years, <laughs> 30 million quid, and I still haven't started my experiment, which is just to see whether I could persuade people to buy uh, <laughs> policies in London. And if they don't, goodness me, what a lot of time and money I've wasted. Um, so we looked at that and we thought, well, uh, if, you st- if you're a technology guy, then you think the first part of that's easy, the distribution, um, the, the website, all that stuff. Um, if you're creative ideas brand guy, you've probably got loads of brilliant ideas, and you think all of this technical account accounting balance sheet stuff's hard. But actually, if you're like me, you're an insurance geek who's spent his entire career in this industry. That that stuff at the back, the technical accounting balance sheet stuff's easy. I know hundreds of people who can do that stuff. I know all of the systems, um, and they're all the same. Everybody uses more or less the same system. Mm. So we thought, well, why don't we do the back stuff, the stuff at the back, the boring stuff? Uh, we find partners who do the stuff at the front that we don't understand and that we who've been in the business know is actually really hard and where you really create uh, advantage. You know, if you can find if you can find customers a bit more cheaply um, or, or persuade customers to, to buy your product a bit better than the next person, then uh, then you have the ability to to be fantastically successful. So it was a kind of plug and play solution. If you want to if you want to build a new insurance business you come and plug into into our system take advantage of our technology our data transfer our, our back-end processing capability our uh, underwriting capital oh and by the way um because you're partnering with with us we'd also like to invest in you so we share in your success that that was the basic business model um we've got about oh. 20 partnerships running um it's a it's a really great business because it, it it um you become a really important partner to um, these fantastically capable entrepreneurs. Um, you know, people like Stephen Mendel, who've built, you know, Stephen's built, I don't know, six or maybe seven businesses before this. Um, and, uh, you know, working with these people is is tremendous. They have incredible, uh, they have incredible energy um, uh, and uh, an incredible, you know, emotional resilience to, to ride the waves of building. A, a new business. So Steve Middles, the CEO of Bought by Many, for those who don't know, um, Bought by Many, that's a Munich digital, Munich Re Digital Partners business. Tell us a bit about, because I think that's actually the way we, we talked about teams earlier on, and they were one of the first businesses I'd like to talk about. But in your job then as the CEO of Digital Partners, you were sort of effectively talent scouting. So businesses would come to you with an idea, with a concept and say, you know, hey, look, we'd love to have this provision from Munich Re. Could you help us? So you were obviously seeing a lot of different opportunities. So what what made people like that bought by many and all the others stand out? What were the things that you were looking for? Um, I mean, the the first and most important thing actually is um, uh, the leader and the team themselves, and this actually is independent of the uh, the idea or the the industry. For um, uh, for venture capital to work and that's essentially what we're doing you know we're putting 
we're putting um, uh, relatively small amounts of money in small and medium degree terms. You know, we might invest, you know, five million or ten million. Um, uh, but you're putting putting it at risk in you know highly highly risky businesses. Um, mm. You know, ninety percent of startup startups fail. We all know those uh, those kind of stats. Um, so the first thing you need is is there has to be a there has to be a big prize. You know, if this succeeds. It has to be big, otherwise it's not worth it, right? You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bet on a on something where I've got a 90% chance of failure. If when it works, it's only going to make me two times my money back. It needs to make me 10 times, 100 times my money back. So um, with that comes comes um, uh, the ability to build a big business. So that's the most important thing. You look at you look at an entrepreneur and the and the team around. Um, and you say, can I imagine these guys running a business that's big enough? You know, not only does the idea have to succeed, but there has to be a team that's capable of actually running a business at that scale. And so I suppose that makes me then think about what you have seen in the way that those those companies do their recruitment as well. So have you have you noticed anything about the way that they build those teams? Because all of the founders I speak to are saying like, okay, and we know we got to get our recruitment right. And I mean, I have opinions on this as a headhunter myself. But what what have you seen? Have you seen this this approach to recruiting people differ between businesses? And what have you seen as being the more the more successful models? Oh oh yes, I suppose the most important thing is is engagement. Um, when I when I joined Munich Re, I had um, one interview and a short follow up. Um, now that was probably unusual, uh, you know, but most um, CEO processes are relatively short, um, you know, two, three, four interviews in a in a uh, in a large corporate, and they're also very heavily headhunter driven. They mm. start with they start with the long list. You know, the headhunter comes up with a long list of names. And, you know, uh, you know, I know Andy, he's a good guy. I know Julie, she's she's great. I know Tom. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about Tom. And as a client, you go, OK, that's fine. Let's have Andy and Julie on the shortlist and we'll, and we'll not have Tom. And then they and then they they bring the shortlist. They've done the pre-interviews for you. Um, they've um, and in, in a sense, you're sort of one cog in the process. Um, I'm involved in a, a senior, a senior hire at um, the business that I'm chair of now um uh, buckle insurance which is a u.s um uh, startup insurance company um and this is a a key role for us so the the candidates have been whittled down through successive interviews with uh with the two founders two other key members of the of the management team um now all the members of the board have interviewed the three finalists um, and uh, and we've got to sort of decision point now, and we don't agree. And, and we're now having a board level discussion about these individual candidates um, and talking about, you know, first of all, do we agree on the on the facts? Do we agree who is stronger in this area and that area? And then what what is it that we need and how important is is this person's cultural fit compared to their technical skills um, and what you have here is just this extremely engaged process in my corporate life I have never seen a, 
a recruitment process, even at group CEO level, which is you know that uh, that engaged. That engagement, I think, shows that uh, startups, um, you know, they just they take hiring more seriously. Um, a lot of them don't use headhunters, which um, I, I think is a reaction to how headhunters operate in corporate life. And I think it's a mistake. Um, I, you know, well, you're going you're gonna to be preaching to the choir on this one. I got to know you through Oliver Wyman, and I always said, actually, as a headhunter, the best place you can learn your trade is in strategy consulting, because I think for so long, strategy consultancies had a, you know, recognized the importance of hiring people. When you got all your business is about the quality of the people that you have, you have to be incredibly dedicated to like making sure you get the right type of people, the right type of intellect. I agree with you, though. I still believe in, in our own industry and in headhunting that maybe um, the discipline of recruitment, the methodologies which are applied are still actually not that well defined. Um, and that's, I think, ultimately where a lot of the problems come in. And I think too often recruitment processes focus in and around things like competencies. And they, and they then start neglecting the values and the motivation of the candidate. And, and I think this comes down to a very, very basic reason, Andy, is that most people never get trained in how to interview. <laughs> so you you go through your professional development as a, as a senior executive, and maybe you get a couple of lessons about how to ask open, closed, and continuation questions, how to, uh, the difference between situational behavioral questions, the the importance of value-based questions, what are values and how are those value-based questions assessed? What is a case study versus sort of a fit interview? You know, all of the sort of the mechanisms that we have at our disposal during an interview, they're not really that taught. So I think that's probably, and I, and it still doesn't, it's still, I still not fail to be surprised by the fact that we have groups of highly intelligent founders going in through into incubators around the world and they're still not primarily taught how to build teams. You know, one of the reasons I think that they tend not to use headhunters is because, you know, if they a founder who's come out of corporate and has seen a corporate hiring process knows that they don't want that and they think, oh, well, that's what headhunters bring. You know, I'd rather have somebody that I know or somebody that I know who's recommended that person. But I think that's, I think that stems from a misunderstanding of how, uh, of how the hiring process works. It seems to me what you what you want in a hiring process is um, you want somebody who who can introduce the market to you. You know, yeah. I don't honestly care if it's if it's everybody in the market, um, but it needs to be you know a broad enough selection of of people. And then what you what you want from your headhunter in that process is uh, is just another voice um you don't want i think a, a a gatekeeper you want someone to run the process in a mechanical way but i think not run the process in a sort of intellectually if you see what i mean too often i think corporates because we don't know really how to recruit we hide behind uh, our headhunter um the best startups around the process i'm using in buckle we are using a headhunter and the headhunter is at the table and and he has a right to be at the table because he has also interviewed the candidates um some of them several times um he has a different he has a different viewpoint um and uh, and he's a strong enough guy that when he sits around the well, the virtual uh, board table with us discussing the candidates 
and and I say, well, it seems to me, uh, it seems to me, Tom's got a bit too much of this going on. He'll say, well, I didn't really, I didn't really see that actually. I wonder whether, I wonder whether you didn't ask that question in the right way or something. And uh, so, and, and then what you have is a real, a real partner who understands what it is that you're trying to, uh, what it is that you're trying to do, and is trying to find the the person that uh, that fits. Um, the problem with that is that it just takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of executive time. And the real difficulty in life is you just don't have enough time because you you know your diary has been filled for you by somebody. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a nice observation about time, and it's a very cognitively intense process. Um, so I wonder, with your own process that we were talking about here, you know, in in terms of where the disagreement happens, um, and we'll just use this as an interesting test case. Is it is it around the the function, the competencies, or is it around the sort of the values and the motivations of the individuals? Um, yeah, I, I think it's around all of those and and and, uh, and how those trade off. I think you're right. It's it's about the role. One of the things you have in a startup is you're never really clear on your roles. And I think uh, uh, a good a good recruitment process is one which accepts that there is some role ambiguity. So you know, I um, I know I need I know I need somebody somebody you know with a certain skill set because my problem is sort of over here. And 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 if I imagine the ideal person in that role, then I've got a set of sort of attributes that might work. And then and then you go and find reality, and you've got a, a bunch of people who don't quite fit that. I mean, you know, who knows? You 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 may you may strike lucky, and you know there may be this that precise per, person there, but that's going to be likely. So so what you have in, in instead then is you have this iterative process. Mm. Which I think, well, you know, uh, uh, Mary's a good Mary, Mary's a good candidate. Um, if Mary was doing the role, what would the role look like, and how would the business work around Mary? How would we deal with where Mary's weak? So then you have a slightly different role. You now have a Mary-shaped role, and if you don't like the look of that role, then 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 Mary's not your candidate. Um, but I could put Bill in that role. Um, the role will look different with Bill because he's got different skills to Mary and maybe it'll fit better for, for Bill. And so then that's when I, I, I sense you really get value out of Headhunter because you get because the, the people around the, the board table, they know the business very well. Um, some of us have uh, you know particular skills in this area so they understand the, the sort of uh, the technical aspects of the of the higher better. Um, but we all understand what we, you know, what we are trying to create from our business. But honestly, we are not, we are not trained to understand people in that way. So you sort of have this, you know, Mary would fit, uh, you know, for Mary you would need this kind of a role. Are we comfortable with that kind of a role? Um, uh, it, it, have we judged Mary right fitting that role? What if, we, what if the role was more like? like this could mary stretch that and that's where you need a headhunter to say well actually you know i think she could i think mary's growing in that that in in that dimension you know this is what this is what you would need to think about in terms of development um she's not going to get there for for six months so can you afford to uh you know can you afford to wait that 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 long and so on what what i what i think i've learned to buckle is that um if you are if you are serious about that for uh, uh, for an important position, 
exactly you have to put the time in mm. and you have to get the expertise um uh, that you know that's like you say that that's where i think you get value from mm. from your headhunter because you know they have they have it, it's not about their network it's about the professional skills they have that you don't have yeah i think there's a couple of very interesting points you raised there and uh, i think about and, and this kind of links to a, a very important question i'd like to end up sort of talking to you a bit about around diversity actually but i i think when we hire someone we're always looking for performance. We want that candidate to be able to perform. And there's this really important balance between performance capacity and performance potential. And I think for any really talented person that they want to know that they can do enough of the job so that they don't feel entirely lost, but they want to know that there's enough stretch, there's enough you know, potential for them to grow into. And so maybe as we're, we're interviewing candidates, we're starting to see that. And I think the balance to have as we go into the recruitment process is to recognize, OK, in your instance with a Mary, does Mary have, say, 80 percent of the performance capacity that we need to get the job done and to be, you know, for us to be able to move forward as a business? But there is enough performance capacity left um, in the role and for her that she can grow into that position. Um, and I think that's also where we stop falling into these traps of just hiring dudes because there's lots and lots of guys and more and more recruitments I'm doing um, you know actively want women and want more diversity because they recognize that that actually makes the team stronger we're going back to some of the early points you can see just see the world in a different way if you're a woman you know if you're from an ethnic minority if you have a different sexuality you just see the world in a different way and that makes the team stronger I would like to finish up talking about diversity because this is a real issue, not only in insurance, but in fintechs and technology generally. So I wonder what your views are on, you know, how that gap gets closed, if you see it as a problem or, you know, what can, can be done to improve diversity? Yes, I think I think diversity uh, is important. And I think it's something we need to do actively. Um, I was always struck by that book by Caroline Criado Perez, the one about uh, explaining how the world is basically built for for men, from from its physical infrastructure to you know the way the world the way the world operates. You know, safety systems are built with men's bodies in mind, you know, um, uh, and so on. And and this is because we default to to masculine all of the time. Um, and um, I I. I, I try to make a conscious effort when I when I write when I use uh, examples. I use she rather than he, um, mm. and, and I, I started doing it because it seemed to me um, a, a good, if easy, thing to do. Um, and, and I was struck by my HR director at a, a, a previous business uh, coming to me and saying, "Thank you for using she." And I was surprised that anyone ever really noticed. But for her, this was massively important. Um, and she said, "You don't realise how many people will hear you say she uh, and go and go. Wow, he actually thinks this is an important thing. The problem actually is is that you forget. Uh, as I think about, it, I'm conscious that all the way through through our discussion, I've been using I've been using he when when I meant you know she or he." Um, and you know, if we could just default to she, um, uh, that's that's that already puts you in a different mindset. Um, I saw some in the context of recruiting. I saw some great research that said when you don't put an actual salary down in an advert, but you put you know competitive or or something, 
uh, fewer women apply. And it strikes me that if you if you know that as someone who's recruiting someone, then there are just a series of things that you should just do differently. Um, mm. You know, uh, write your uh, uh, write your advert, run your recruitment process um, with uh, with with women in mind uh, and with uh, and with diversity in mind. And what you find are are better candidates. Um, uh, never, well, never in my experience. Uh, has this been about? Um, I'm going to hire. I'm going to hire Mary, even though I know Tom's better. But I want diversity. I've never had that, uh, mm. that situation. I think it's about. Um, I want to hire the best candidate, and and the best candidate um, is someone out of the population of 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 male, female, gay, gay, straight, trans, uh, black, white, green, wherever, and and therefore. What I want is a recruitment process which is broad enough to bring all of these people into my net um, and, and a process which is not itself discriminatory, a process which is uh, which is going to find me the right person for uh, uh, for the role. Mm. Yeah, I think I think I had a similar experience actually around um, pronouns and just simplistic, simplistic sort of behavior that we can have as white men to two white guys talking about diversity um is that you know just recognizing and we were talking i was i think we had a cto position and there is a, a real paucity of diversity in in technical particularly cto positions because there are some structural issues with more men entering those degrees than there are women and that causes an issue with the, the actual candidate pool later on but you're right actually just first of all i, I got picked up on that it was actually using she or using a gender neutral um, pronouns. And I think that's, um, I think actually a really important thing, just little things we can all be doing. But I think even beyond just these sort of very surface things, it's actually just changing the way that we behave. And, you know, I, I remember hearing from senior women who said to me, Will, you will not be surprised how much we still get talked over, how much we don't get listened to, how much this sort of um, macho behavior um, is still prevalent in environments. And if people just change the way they behave, that opens up the potential for more a more diverse set of voices to be heard. You know, having a more diverse workforce means that you have less blind spots. You know, if you have somebody in your team who comes from a, a poor background and you have someone who comes from a rich background, they will see the world in a different way. They'll be same, equally intelligent and they will help your business be more resilient because they will see problems. They will see opportunities. It's the same if you have a woman, same if you have someone who comes from who's, who's maybe um, Asian or black, gay or straight. They just understand different perspectives of reality. And that helps your team to be that much stronger. So, yeah, that's what we can do, I suppose, ultimately in my job and I suppose in yours as well. So Andy, I've been fascinated to hear about your journey and all the things you've done. But maybe just tell what, what's happening next, Andy, because I know you've got some news. Um, what's happening for you um, as we finish up? So yeah, what's what's coming next to you? So I stepped out of, uh, of Digital Partners um, uh, from the first of December, um, uh, which was you know part of my part of my life plan. Um, everything sort of came together at the right time in that um, you know I've been running the business for four and a half years um it felt like it was time for 
change. When you build a business um, uh, like Digital Partners, um, we were, you know, we were part of Munich Re, but we were also on the side, and the business began to look very like me. Um, and you, you know, as a CEO, you have to be aware of the the, uh, the strength of your own voice. And I, I thought the business could do with uh, someone else leading it. Um, I also passed the big five zero in September. Congratulations! Wow. <laughs> and when I when I started working my early in my early twenties, um, I felt I would really like to go and do a PhD. But firstly, I didn't have any money, and secondly, I didn't really have a subject at that point. Um, uh, but at twenty, looking forward to sixty just seemed impossibly far away. So I so I <laughs> said I'll work really hard until I'm fifty, um, and then go and do a PhD, um, and you know have a different style of life. So I'm right at the beginning of that journey now I, um, i'm sort of hoping to start a phd sometime next year uh, i'm doing uh, then also some non-exec and some advisory work um uh, so, so is this is this a form of retirement andy is this what we're saying this is retirement at 50 um it's you know so, <laughs> um, uh, you know i think these days uh, for, for people like us I, I think retirement is is not really a, a concept that 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 makes sense anymore you know I get I get retirement you know if you've spent if you spent 40 years doing a um, you know a physically demanding job then you then I think you have a right to 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 stop doing that and you know to do what you like um uh, my 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 life has not been so physically demanding when I'm, <laughs> I'd like to do something uh, something different um uh, and for me there's a there's a big difference between um uh, between being a a CEO and being a, uh, a non-exec director and the the difference is being a ceo is all is all consuming um it has to be your, your number one focus in uh, in everything it takes precedence over um over you know other interests you might have it very often takes precedence over over family life you know you know um uh, it it takes it takes over your weekends and 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 that is just inevitable even if you're not doing something you're thinking you're thinking about it you there's always stuff going on um whereas being a being a non-exec director allows you i think to to advise to engage to use your to use your skills to give something back to to the industry that i've um that sustained me uh, and just to have a yeah a slightly different a different pace of life and, and you've made this quite quite a, quite a, an exciting and brave choice at 50 to step away from this role that so many people would want. But how how have you managed your well-being? And you can say terribly, but do you have any tools or, or what have you done to, to sort of make to try and help create some balance in your life? Um, yeah, yeah. Honestly, the answer, I think, would be would be terribly. <laughs> um, I'm. Frankly, I'm skeptical of, uh, of CEOs who claim they have balance. Most of the things I see from from CEOs who are um, uh, who claim who claim to have mindful techniques, it tends to involve getting up at 3 a.m. and doing meditation and then going out for a run and so on. And this is all very fine as long as you have absolutely no family life and only sleep three hours a night. Um, I, I think the reality is, as a CEO of uh, almost any size business, but certainly a reasonable size business. Um, uh, you just are, you know, you're not only busy, 
but you also have you know an accumulation of of stress there is always stuff going on in your business there is always bad news to deal with because when things are going well you know you don't need to know when you know you spend your day dealing with the problems so how do you how do you unwind then what's your sort of your your relaxation technique uh you, you retire at 50 um, <laughs> um, i mean to be honest I, I never um i never had a great uh relaxation technique um to i mean you have you, you, you i suppose you have to t- try and take your mind off things you, what you don't want to do is dwell on things but uh, I, I i walk the dog my wife used to say she would see me out of the window um, and I would set off with the dog and I and I would be, you know, talking to myself or rather talking to the dog um, and I would chanter all the way through the, the walk. And if I was and if I was still visibly chantering on the way back, she'd know she would know I'd had a bad week. Um, well, so that's an interesting that's an interesting I, type the of dog absorbed a lot of stress. Well, hey, that's I mean, it's, it's honestly not something that's um to be sniffed at there. I think there's, an, there's a coping mechanism there that, that being outside and walking and being in nature is um, a very important component of, of well-being, um, certainly why I live in Devon. So as we're finishing up, you know, one of the questions I love asking people is I'm, I'm an avid reader and I'd just love to know about the books that have interested you and in, you know, your background. So are there sort of three books that have really um, sort of impacted you or a book or any book that you give away? I am not a business book reader. Um, I, I will be. Um, I'll be honest with you. I, what one business book that I think is is worth reading if if you're at all in um, in the innovation space or interested in innovation, um, which is by Charlie Fine, who's a professor at MIT. It is called Clock Speed, um, and that really is about the speed at which different industries change, and how they go through this kind of. Um, uh, cycle of, of innovation consolidation disaggregation um that's uh yeah that, that that's worth reading to get to get a sense of um you know in any in the industry that you're in uh, what can you really expect from innovation uh when is the right time um you know that reading that book was one of the things that persuaded me that that this time the that insurtech was was real i i, I could see that it, the, the industry was um was ready for it uh, beyond that um I, I i mean i suppose this is back back to mindfulness um i i read i read every day um mm-hmm. uh, uh mostly novels non-fiction all sorts of things um if you read every day you can take on things that are bigger um i've mm-hmm. just James Boswell's Life of Samuel Johnson, and it's absolutely fascinating. You know, sort of insight into uh, uh, an 18th century genius. Um, Is my, it mostly biographies that you read then? Sort of. Um, that, that you no, I read all, all sorts of novels. My favourite author is uh, is Haruki Murakami. Um, he's Japanese. He writes novels about about people trapped in strange situations. So, your favourite book then? What is the favourite book of all time, Andy? Andy, for you, if I, you had to choose one. It would be uh, Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami, um, which is about a uh, a teenage boy um, growing up, going up, going to college. So you you meet him just as he's gone to college, and uh, and he's a bit lost. Um, his uh, his best friend had committed suicide, and he doesn't really understand why, and he sort of vaguely thinks it might be his fault. Um, and it's a 
it's just a beautiful book. Um, um, I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit I read it I read it for the first time on a on a long flight over to South Korea and I cried all the way through the flight, which is which is slightly embarrassing, but it is a wonderful. <laughs> that 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 is a beautiful um a beautiful recommendation and a cool moment and well i think probably an apt place to leave it uh, for the conversation and i must say and I've, I've greatly appreciated your time and your learning and um i think what munich Re digital partners have done has been fantastic so i think you're really proud of that development there's been some great businesses come out of that um, i want to wish you a really fantastic non-retirement thank you so much for your your insights and and sharing the time with us today thank you very much Will. that was a lot of fun Well, all right. Thanks so much for joining us during that conversation. It's been a really interesting one, and I hope you'll take some time to join us on the next episode, which will be coming up soon. I want to give a big shout out to our producer, Andrea Merskin, who's done a fantastic job. And I hope you'll listen in for the next episodes and continue to give us a bit of feedback on how we're doing. But until then, be well and have a fantastic week. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.